Inside the Game, brought to you by Raider Media. Now, there's no question that if you ask any cricket fan worth his or her salt, who is South Africa's out-and-out best test captain that they've had, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone that responds with an answer other than one Graham Smith. Uh, He has led from the front almost from the very beginning of his test career or his international career with South Africa, um, taking over the armband at the tender age of 21, and uh, yeah, many would say retired from the game prematurely, yet still had plenty to offer. But since then, he's moved over into a very successful commentary role. And I think that's where I find him right now over in Dubai. Graham Smith, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, first and foremost, yeah, well, what are you doing over in the UAE? <laughs> Derek Alderton, thanks for the very kind introduction. Um, I'm over here doing, uh, well, with the PSL, doing two weeks of commentary with uh, the league here. Um, and then we'll head back to South Africa for the one-day series against Sri Lanka. Graham, just a quick canvas out of asking people who've been watching television over the last couple of months, years, uh, uh, since your move over to Supersport with the commentary stint, they've been amazed with your insight. And I think it's hardly surprising, given your history and, and given how many years you played the game. But, uh, I mean, you really have settled into the role pretty quickly and pretty well. I mean, we've seen cases where a former player doesn't necessarily make a good commentator. But in this case, I don't think that's the case. Uh, how are you enjoying your stint behind the scenes? Um, it's, it's been an interesting one. I mean, I don't think television was something that I sort of expected to, to, to get into. I mean, uh, I think obviously media has been a huge part of my life. It kept me in South Africa for a lengthy period of time. You had to teach and adapt and learn learn myself many skills, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so started very slowly. Was fortunate that I got involved in one or two big series, and you kind of start a bit ner- uh, nervously. And, and and the big thing is, is like you know how people respond to the information that you're giving. Um, obviously, learning the dynamics of a commentary box is one thing. There's been guys that have been there for a long time, learning the do's and don'ts. But you know, the most uh, important thing for me has always been the feedback you know that you get from people that are, are listening to you and. Uh, you know, that's been pretty positive. I think people, as you say, have enjoyed the insights that I've brought to the commentary box in terms of the way I think about the game, the way I, I you know, uh, sort of put my own personality and spin on, 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 on cricket. And I think that's, that's all I've tried to do. <clears throat> I said many people would say maybe prematurely you, you quit uh, the international game. And I, I looked to someone like Stephen Cook because it's amazing to me how the two of you opened the batting for Kez back in your school days. And only once you retired from international cricket, Stephen Cook went on to make his international debut. I mean, that just goes to show there were still a few years left maybe in the tank, or, or do you reckon you're happy for when you called it quits? Um, you know, I, 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 I agree with you. I did retire uh, young at 33. Um, probably had a couple of good years left in me. Um I think that I had a, uh, a very full career. Um, you know, I started captaining my country at 22. So 11 years in that job certainly does, um, you know, take its toll. Um, and, you know, obviously life situations weren't, weren't simple at, at that stage. Uh, you know, sort of 
heading into a divorce and also my daughter got burnt with hot water. So I think the whole sort of situation that I was facing was sort of just, um, you know, uh, mounting on me in terms of uh, my emotional and mental sort of stress that I was under. I think also, um, you know, there was a change in, you know, we'd built that environment to a very successful environment, um, you know, through the times with Mickey Arthur, then into the times with Gary Kirsten, and we were a really high-performing team. And, and when Russell Domingo took over, I just honestly didn't have the energy uh, to go back, you know, 10 steps and start all over again. You know, he was a very inexperienced coach. Uh, there were lots of things happening that we sort of moved away from. So I think it all just culminated in a, in a situation where, you know, the timing, you know, for me was right. Um, and I decided to walk away from the game. And I have no regrets. I mean, when I look back, it's was an incredible time, the things we created, um, you know, the things I was able to achieve. So, you know, I'm pretty proud. And I, I, I don't find myself pondering on a daily basis, you know, about the what ifs. I mean, uh, you know, I just keep remembering all the magnificent times that I was fortunate enough to, to have uh, in South African cricket. It's an interesting point you make about the relationship between a captain and a coach on the cricket field. Now, I haven't really captained much in my lifetime when it comes to sport. I, I dabbled a bit with rugby, but I think from a captaincy point of view, you didn't really have too much to do as a rugby player. And it just goes back to the fact that I don't think there's a sport in the world where a captain has at, as much influence on a match or, or proceedings than a cricket captain does. And I chatted to Mickey Arthur about two weeks ago uh, when he was down here with Pakistan. And he said he caught up with you one night uh, over dinner. And you look back at the fond memories. I mean, was was that a massive relationship? Did, did that play a, a huge part in the success that the Proteas had in the relationship between you and Mickey Arthur? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Mickey came in, you know, at a time where I was also ready as a leader, you know, sort of moving my leadership skills to the next level. And I think about the first four years of my captaincy, it was, you know, very up and down results. Wise, you know, I had a lot of growing to do from a young man from like 22 to 26. I think the team environment, you know, it was, was very much chopping and changing in terms of the personnel. We had, you know, part-time coaches and the whole bank shoot. So the time that Mickey and I got together and was able to really, you know, focus on building South African cricket, making sure that we, one, selected the right type of people, you know, created the environment for success. Um, and really, you know, uh, that was a big stepping stone in terms of the success and the changes in the way the team played and the achievements that it started to have was, was, was with myself and Mickey. And we had a, a really good relationship. Uh, uh, you know, we, you know, it was a real honest relationship. Um, I think now we could, we're obviously great mates. Um, and, you know, just sitting down with him and reminiscing over some of the, the things that we were able to achieve over that period. I mean, we were saying the, the other night, you know, in one year we were drew, in one year on the road. We drew a series in India, one one in Pakistan, uh, one in Bangladesh, one in England, and one in Australia. You know, in one in one year. So you know, it's a lot of time on the road and, and a very successful year in itself. So there were some great great memories that we brought up. Yeah, that's actually one thing I spoke to him about. I said if I could go back in time to a year of sporting success and relive it from a fan's point of view, there's no question I'd go back to 2008. I mean, especially those two away tours to first England and then to Australia. Now, we're running a, a bit of a, a poll. Uh, I've canvassed about 20 or so cricket journos uh, from around the world, particularly South Africa, though. Uh, this was in light of Cassel Pereira's incredible innings against the Proteas in Durban. And I wanted to know what 
of, of many people, what was the opinion as the best ever essay test innings post-isolation or, or in ever really? And I, I've got to say, your innings at Edgebasson, that uh, fourth inning century, which helped us go on to win the test, um, that is looking like it's standing head and shoulders above the rest. Talk us through that day and, and, and what happened. Yeah, yeah, well, from my perspective, it was probably the best innings I've, I've played in, <clears throat> in Test match cricket. If you just you consider the situation and uh, the state of the series, and um, it was it was actually a kind of a, a funny day, you know. In many ways, when you tour England or big uh, big tours like that, you know, you you spend a lot of uh, mental and emotional energy. I mean, physically, you get you get tired, but you know, it's more the, the drain of, you know, the crowd, the media, you know, the, the pressure to make sure that you perform day in and day out. And, you know, we were one up in that series. And uh, it's always so difficult at the end of a long tour. You know, if you lose that test match to go to the Oval and have to win at the, the Oval where England play well, uh, generally. Um, <clears throat> so I, I knew that that was a big test match for us. <laughs> I, I carried a massive uh, sort of back problem into the game. I almost didn't play the game. Um, and only probably really got to about 100% on, on about day three. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the hardest part for me in that game was that we, we had the game in, in, in our hands. Uh, and the Collingwood batted extremely well. And, you know, suddenly got England over a lead of, of 200 odd. And, uh, you know, you just feel like that moment, that opportunity to win a series kind of slips away. So when I got up on that morning, uh, I actually didn't feel that good. I mean, uh, I didn't make breakfast. I didn't make, the, <laughs> I didn't make uh, anything. I just sort of arrived on the bus on time, but, you know, really just trying to find my own um, mental state uh, for the day ahead. And, <clears throat> So often as a captain, you know, you're so worried about everybody else that you forget and neglect to to sort of make sure that you're okay. You know, so I knew it was going to be a big day. And I sort of, I think that morning, <clears throat> I had to process a lot of sort of the emotions and pressures that maybe I'd, I'd felt in the build-up uh, and, and get rid of them. And probably the first, I don't know, I think we batted for about 40 minutes before lunch. <clears throat> And it was probably one of the worst 40 minutes I've ever batted in my life. <laughs> I uh, edged through the slips, I played and missed non-stop. I don't even think it was just, I remember sitting down at lunch going, my word, I don't know how I survived that. Um, and I walked out after lunch and Jimmy Anderson bowled me, dragged one down, a bouncer, and I smashed it through my wicket for four. And everything kind of just changed. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I fell into this mental state, this zone, um, and, you know, started to feel really good and everything started to, you know, sort of flow nicely and, you know, myself and Neil McKenzie put on a really good partnership um, until, you know, the drama of the side screen in, in, in that test match uh, became, reared its head again and uh, before I knew it, we were four or five down for, you know, still needing a lot of runs. Um and I think that uh, moment is a moment that I'll never forget, actually. I was standing at the non-strikers in, <clears throat> and Callis ducked into a full toss from uh, Flintoff and the edge Baston crowd went absolutely mad uh, when he was given out. And the whole stand, I remember standing at the non-strikers in just watching the stand and as the whole stand started singing, Cheerio, Cheerio, <laughs> Cheerio to Callis. And uh, I just remember watching this whole thing unfold. It was 
was quite an incredible experience. And then, of course, you're joined in the middle by Mark Boucher. Well, you first had that 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 partnership with AB, and Boucher came to you. And I mean, if there's ever a nuggety fighter that you want to be teamed up with uh, to take your team over the line, it's him. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we needed a partnership somewhere, and I, I kind of, I mean, I actually remember saying to Mickey, I think it was at the tea break, if someone stays with me, we're going to get there, you know. Um, and AB and myself managed to form a partnership. I knew it was going to be very difficult for the tail enders coming in on that that pitch because it was spinning. Monty Panasso was spinning the ball a long way, and Flintoff was charging in. There were side screen issues. Guys were ducking into full tosses, and actually, as a left hander, I never I never had a problem with that. So. You know, the right-handers were struggling. So I just knew that, you know, that AD partnership and Darcher partnership was going to be key. And I'll never forget when Darcher came out, he was marching like, you know, like a little, you know, bulldog out in the middle with intent. And I just sort of, uh, you know, he said to him, how are you doing? Have you thought about Flintoff, whatever? And he just said, don't worry, I've got this. We're, I've got a new technique I've been working on. <laughs> so I said, okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it just, you started from that, that point and you just slowly watch the scoreboard tick down and tick down and tick down and, you know, the game gets to those moments where, you know, you you know you're close, but every sort of 10 runs feels like a, a marathon, you know. So you just slowly work your way there and then, you know, it came that moment to take the extra half an hour and uh, but I walked up the bouch and there was, was no doubt that we were going to punch through it and go for it and, uh, yeah, it ended up being... One of the most magnificent moments of my career. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I hadn't eaten the whole day. Um, I lived on these like um, uh, energy type drinks that the trainer was bringing, bringing to me. Uh, and I remember we had an incredible celebration in the change room uh, as a team. And arriving at the hotel that night, I mean, there were just tons of South African journals and South Africans there waiting for us. It was just uh, an incredible, incredible time. Now, you ended that innings on 154 not out. Uh, an amazing stat looking back at your career is that you scored four fourth inning centuries, three of which you ended undefeated, and you never scored a century in a losing cause. Uh, you, you, I mentioned that you took to captaincy from a very early age, and, and not just from an international perspective, but also from your younger years as well. Was it something that you thrived on, being able to lead from the front in terms of playing? Um, I, th- I think it was it's just the determ- my nature I um, was very determined and you know I had a real will to, to succeed and obviously captaincy you know I think heightens that with you know the extra pressure that you face and you know you ask consistently you know a lot of your teammates you know and uh, you know you, you make demands of them and in, in, in many ways you have to lead from the front when, when you do that you know so I knew it was as important as a captain and a leader to, uh, from tactics to man management to everything else to actually make sure that I perform. And I think early on in my career, you know, it certainly was a big factor. I think it gets tougher to manage the longer you're in the job because of the pressures and the rigors. And, you know, even though you, you learn sort of more skills, I guess, you know, you know, it's not as new and fresh and, you know, you know, it's something that you have to, you know, consistently work on and make sure that you mentally train yourself and, and so on. So, you know, I, I think for me, I was very fortunate in the earlier years of my captaincy that I managed to score runs because I, I probably wouldn't have, if I didn't score those runs, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to then, you know, showcase my leadership skills in sort of the last 
six or seven years of, of my captaincy where I think I really flourished. You know, built a really good team, grew some incredible young cricketers in South African cricket that have gone on to make huge successful strides. Um, and also uh, build that, that pro fire culture. You know, that was something that was really special as well. So I was really glad that I was, <clears throat> in many ways, the runs that I scored, you know, um, allowed me that, that platform. What was it like going into the cauldron of international cricket? You, you came in very young. You missed out on a World Cup squad. You added later. And then there was a famous introduction to the Australian side. And you spoke out about it afterwards, about how bad the sledging was. So firstly, from your your debut in the international arena, and then a few months later, suddenly the captaincy was thrust upon you. What was that like? I mean, for, for 21 going on to 22-year-old, uh, you know, those guys... At that age, you, you're trying to plan your, your 21st birthday. You don't know what you, you want to do in your life. And there, there you are, captaining your country. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I'm honest, I always have a, had an internal drive. I mean, I, I think it's been documented somewhere. I mean, I, I went to this, I was invited to a Plaston Academy as an 11-year-old. And they had the psychologist there who helped us goal set um, in that academy. I mean, I was, he taught us how to do it and I, and I wrote on a piece of paper as a long-term goal that I'd love to captain South Africa. So I think <clears throat> deep down, it was always a drive and a, and a goal of mine. I mean, when I look back and taking the job at 22, I, I think how stupid I was, you know. Um, he just but in the moment, I really believe that, uh, you know, maybe it was my, being naive or they didn't understand the sort of huge nature of what was required in the job, but I really believed, and I think I was just so focused on from maybe a cricket perspective that I could do a, a really good job uh, in, in that leadership role. Um, so I think I had that, and then and then really, you know, made lots of mistakes, uh, had to grow, um, had to develop my personality, you know, as a, as a leader. I mean, I think initially uh, a lot of people probably thought I was arrogant because you know, everywhere I went, I was getting attacked and challenged. And, you know, from foreign media to even ex-players in South Africa to, you know, oppositions that, you know, like as a young captain, I was being taken on everywhere. So you form this like really protective barrier of, of like, well, I'm going to show you type mentality. And I took time to grow out of that and sort of allow my personality and my, um, you know, to sort of show everybody else the, the personality that I had and the skills and you know, the leadership and so on so you know I, 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 when I look back I mean I, I think geez, I don't know how I got through those first three or four years it was insane and then you know I, the last six or seven years I felt fully in control of, of the leadership of the team I, you know of my decision making of um, you know how we went about things as I said the players the youngsters the, you know developing the, the talent um, and making the big decisions you know I felt uh, fully in control of, of, of that, that period Walking into the dressing room when you first started the captaincy, uh, how tough was it or intimidating to see the likes of Sean Pollock, Gary Kirsten around you, and then knowing full well that you've got to give them orders, which they have to abide by? And did they? I mean, did the team embrace you as a leader or or was it a learning curve up front? Um, I I think that, I mean, I I was unbelievably fortunate on on that front. And and it's something that I guess people don't, they struggled to tell him, you know, I, when I took the job, um, Sean phoned me um, and told me to, you know, to, to take the job. Um, and, you know, so he sort of gave me his blessing. Um, 
there were a couple of issues with Sean and maybe I think Eric Simon's the coach at the time. There was a few trust issues and you know, through selection. And obviously Sean was you know, getting out of the captaincy. It was always going to be a, a tough period, but he was magnificent. The senior players were incredible in their support for me. It was, it was almost like they believed as well that, you know, that, 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 you know, with me as a young captain, there was an opportunity to build something fresh and new, you know. Um, and they were they were amazing in the way that they supported me, the way they allowed me to make my mistakes and, you know, quietly, you know, you know have a drink and talk through it. And, you know, I was very fortunate from, from, from that perspective. Um, you know, uh, they, they backed a lot of what I, I, I asked and, and had to say as a young man um, with very little experience. And, and, you know, I think, again, probably the huge thing was being able to walk the walk, you know, going out and getting those two double hundreds and leading from the front in, in the way that I played the game. And, you know, I think that earned me the respect as well, you know. Um, and, and, you know, respect is the most, probably the most important thing to have in, in, in an environment like that. So, you know, um, I think they all knew that I was going to have my ups and downs uh, and they were going to be there to help me. And I was really fortunate from that perspective. Yeah, that leads me to my next question. You famously ended the careers of three England captains in Nasu, St. Michael Vaughan and Andrew Strauss. Now, that first series away in England, you scored the back-to-back double tons at Edgbaston and Lords. And, and prior to the series, I think Nasser got your name wrong if I'm not mistaken. I think he called you Greg Smith. And (laughs) what was that like hearing that? I mean, you say you like to prove people wrong. Was that a major motivating factor? Oh, um, the build-up to that first test in England was insane, actually. It was uh, um, the media and the hype. And, you know, I felt it. And I felt the nerves, you know. Luckily, I was batting well. Um, In the warm-up games, I've done good form. So I felt confident within my own game. But, you know, NASA was doing articles. There were things that were calling me what's-his-name in the press. And, you know, I remember the night before that, that test match, um, just really not sleeping at all. <laughs> I uh, spent a lot of time visualizing, like, you know, the bowlers. I mean, never mind captain. I was going to play Splintoff, Palmerton, Anderson, Giles. I mean, there was going to be, you know, Goff. You know, that was going to be a challenge in South Africa, the batting in England you know, first time in a test series, big test series. So that, that was on my brain as well. And then like as a captain, I had all these things, do I bat, do I bowl, you know? So like, you know, you just want to make the right decision. So every decision felt massive for me. And uh, so I just kept playing this game up in my head. And actually the one thing that kept stressing me from a batting perspective was, you know, Harmison. You know, he, he got extreme bounce and I was a tall guy. So I was trying to decide, do I take him on with a pull shot, do I duck? You know, until I'm in, or you know, what's going to be my my approach, and uh, sort of just kept thinking in my head that I think maybe early on, if I, you know, he was bugging me, and uh, so I walked out the next day, and all the stats said to me bowl first, and the wicket looked good, so I ended up batting um, at the tops, as you said. Uh, NASA introduced me to the mascot as Greg Smith. <laughs> I was so nervous and sad; I don't even think I could get a word out. Um, and, uh, yeah, we walked out to bat, and I think it was in the first or second over, Harmison bounced me, and I just went underneath it. And it was almost like that just calmed me down. It was like I'd kind of almost been in that moment before because I'd been thinking about it so much and visualizing that it kind of like I took a deep breath, and myself and Hirsch went on to put 300. I mean, who would have who would have thought? Um, and at the end of the game, NASA, NASA resigned. Um, to be honest with you, I never really thought anything of of that, I mean, I was 
so engrossed in sort of the situation that I was in and, you know, wanting to be a successful team and successful captain and win the series. I mean, there was a lot of rain in that game, which ultimately cost us. I think I got an 80 or something in the second innings as well. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't experienced enough or new enough to really resonate with, with what NASA was going through at that stage. So I didn't really, uh, you know, think about it too much. I think the one that affected me, you know, made me think and consider was, was the Michael Vaughan one. I mean, he had been hugely successful. We had kind of started our battle straight away in the next test match. You know, he was an excellent captain, a great guy, and we had a good relationship. So when he resigned, I was... Um, you know, uh, you know. I remember sitting on the team bus from Edgebaston, and you know, news was breaking, and sent him a message. And you know, that was that was kind of when I started thinking, geez, you know, like uh, it's kind of thing. You know, and I felt the emotion for for Michael Vaughan. Uh, still good friends with him today. Um, the Andrew Strauss one was was a, was a tough one. You know, I, I think you know myself and Strauss he had always had a lot of battles over the years um, he was very much different style of personality to me where he was like, almost like a English head boy you know private school boy um, very well spoken um, and so we had had our, had our battles you know and I, I think that series in 2012 when he um, when, when he ultimately resigned I mean it was a very tense and tough series that uh, he was at the forefront of you know uh, it's never nice to see someone walk away I mean but uh, you know, we were so focused on becoming number one in the world. He he, he was quite um, outspoken in the series and on the field and stuff like that. So there was a bit more heat in the battle to to maybe that that moment. But in time, you know, as you reflect, uh, having been through it myself, it, it couldn't have been an easy time for him. I mean, English cricket had a lot going on with the KP stuff and, and everything else. I always find it ironic that uh, the captain you, you got on least on with uh, in terms of the three was a guy that was born in the same city as you in, in Johannesburg. Um, Graham, <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, there were disappointments along the way. Of course, South Africa thrived in the test arena. I think looking back, probably the big black mark um, from an SA perspective has been their performances in World Cups. And I mean, is that something you look back on and think, geez, you know, we could have had one or two um, under my belt? Yeah, but I mean, it, 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 it's the one thing that I look back on and saying, you know, like how good it would have been just to have one of those. Uh, um, the the one in particular that uh, I really think that we should have won that uh, was a big disappointment. I, mean, I think it was a 2020 World Cup in England. I think it was in 2009. We were the most dominant team by far. We lost to Pakistan in the semi-finals on a spinning wicket. Um, in a tread bridge. And we, even then, I think we still should have won that game. Um, so that one in particular hurts hurts a lot um, because that that is the one that I thought we were going to. You know, no one came close to us in the tournament. We were the most dominant team by far. We should have won that one. So, so that one that one hurts a little bit. And uh, the rest, you know, you kind of look at with perspective. You know, in 2007, I mean, Australia were just incredible. I never lost the game. You know, the period where they were so dominant. Um, you know, we really had to play out of our socks to, to match them, and we didn't. Um, you know, 2011 World Cup in India, you know, it's always going to be tough against the subcontinent teams. You have your chances. You know, we should have ultimately beaten New Zealand in, in the quarterfinals. Whether we would have won the World Cup or not, I, I don't know. But I think for me, when I look back, the 2009-2020 World Cup is the one that I, I believe uh, sort of... Uh, 
the one that we let slip. Yeah, I'll never forget. Actually, I was there and uh, speaking to you immediately afterwards at, at Trent Bridge. I mean, I've never seen you as gutted as you were that that evening. And uh, the next day, I stayed in the media box till quite late that night. And Pakistani fans were, were still celebrating well into the night. And uh, as a as a South African covering it, uh, it was quite tough. The next day, I, I caught a taxi through to the train. And I had a Pakistani driver, and he asked, uh, where are you from? And I said, no, South Africa. He goes, oh, the chokers, the chokers. And th- that wasn't too nice, just <laughs> covering that. So I can imagine as a, as a player, it must have been terrible. Of course, it is a, a World Cup. Yeah, year. I mean, yeah. Uh, post, post-World Cup, it's, it's a very challenging time, you know, because, you know, you, you, it's, a, it's a period where there's, there's such chaos in the media. If you haven't gone on to win it, you know, everyone's questioning and looking for answers why, and, you know, there's always a drama or two that happens and, you know, as a player, and especially the captain, you know, you, you just want to go into a hole for a period of time, you know, it's a really difficult period, you know, when you walk on the streets back in South Africa, everyone's sort of having a dark or <laughs> you just, you feel like you're sort of on the clock, you know, being watched uh, and questioned wherever you go. So it's, it's a very challenging um, time um, and also, you know, you're dealing with your own emotions and, you know, uh, Disappointment as, as well within that that space, um, and yeah, I mean on the choker thing. I mean that's you know I really didn't you know think about that too much to be honest with you. I mean you know we achieved so many amazing things, and you know you don't achieve those things if you can't handle pressure and you can't play well. And you know ultimately, you know I think the thing that gets to you about that choker thing, especially as a captain, and it's something that Duke is going to have to deal with, is that you get asked about it a million times. So mm. every press conference, there'll be four or five journalists that will ask you the same thing around that subject. So you eventually just get frustrated in having to answer it. You know what I mean? So that's something that Duplessis will have to consider going into this World Cup in terms of how he manages that. I mean, in no way going into a World Cup should any of these players be burdened with any of that, that rubbish. You know, it's just go and play, give it a shot you know, back your talent and hopefully, you know, selection will be good and, you know, you get that little bit of luck that you need. And, you know, there's enough quality around in that side at the moment, especially from a bowling um, uh, perspective. There's some real, you know, you know, if you go to a World Cup and you have a bowling attack like we potentially could have and you've got two good spin options, you've got really good attacking uh, wicket-taking options with the ball. And, and also, I think the key is, this is you know, your defensive play in a World Cup needs to be good. You know, like how you defend with a bowling perspective, you know, taking wickets, controlling games, you know, uh, is, 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 is important. And, uh, yeah, I think, there's, you know, if the batters can get together and the selection of the squad is good, I think there's a real chance for the guys to, you know, give themselves an opportunity to win the World Cup. And that's ultimately what you want to do. You want to give yourself that opportunity and then, you know, hopefully you take it. Just on the subject of the squad selection, uh, of course, Otis Gibson wouldn't have his 15 finalised as yet. Uh, there's still a few more games to go. Uh, any left field selections that you'd look into? I know that you're, you're quite outspoken about the, someone like Chris Morris, for instance, uh, during the test series down here while you're in the commentary. And, I mean, would you see someone like Rassi van der Dissen having cemented his spot in the middle order? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if Rassi doesn't go. I mean, he... You know, more than the runs that he got, he looks in control of his game. He looks to understand, uh, you know, have an ability to deal with you know, tough situations, which is which is going to be needed. Um, 
you know, it's a tough one. It's the balance. I guess the balance is the problem that the CPC and Otis Gibson and Selectors are going to have, you know, especially if they want to take a spare keeper, which I don't think they're going to, I don't, I don't think they can have the luxury of taking a spare keeper. You know, it just really puts the balance of their squad out and, you know, you know, in, take the risk that the cock will make it through the tournament. If he gets injured badly enough, it's the flight over for, for somebody else. But I just think of the balance of the squad. They're, they're struggling in the all-rounder position, so they need to ba- have backup there. You know, you, you you need to have a backup seamer. You need to have backup padding options. Uh, and you want to take two spinners. So, you know, working that 15 is not going to be easy for them. Uh, you know, so, you know, from a policy perspective, they have to make that work. You know, so there's, there's lots for them to look at. Graham, wrapping up now, just uh, looking back at your career, uh, best player that you opened with, or who did you enjoy opening the batting with the most? Um, look, I have to go back to the beginning with Hirsch. I mean, there was, you know, we had some, you know, three, three hundred own partnerships as a pair, you know, as a player, you know, I think we complemented each other so well. <laughs> Just such an interesting personality, Hirsch, and, and, you know, play to the game and, you know, I think we we bonded as a partnership, you know, really, really well. I think from there on in, you know, there were like, you know, with Alviro and, and Neil Mack, there were moments. But uh, I'd probably say that, you know, the large part of my career, I have to say Hirsch. Hardest bowler you ever had to face? <laughs> well, there were a few of them. <laughs> um, I think for me, the hardest bowler was always like when, when I was struggling with one or two technical things, you know, like Hoggard through one series, you know, kept getting me out of LBW. You know, but I think in general, if you go to the quality, I think like someone like a Glenn McGrath, I mean, the pace of Brett Lee and Shah Malik in our, our era was just incredible. And then also the, the, the challenge of overcoming like incredible spin, which I think is sort of lacking in today's modern game. You know, if you think about the likes of Ajmal, Murillitran, Warren, you know, uh, the guys who could bowl the juicers and all that sort of stuff. I think being a South African opening bat and being able to go and get runs in subcontinent and the likes against quality like that was, 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 was a good thing for me. And the toughest captain tactically that you came up against? Tactically, I would say Michael Vaughan. Um, I think he was very smart and shrewd. Um, most competitive was, was Ricky Ponting. Lovely. Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for uh, you know, giving up a lot of your time over in Dubai. Enjoy uh, the rest of your time in the UAE. And uh, I really can't wait to catch up when you're back in SA. Thanks, bud. Appreciate the chat and uh, look forward to catching up. Cheers, my man. Bye. Thanks for listening to Inside the Game. Brought to you by Radar Media.